traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B9, Germanicus. For anyone looking closely, there were plenty of ill omens. A few months before Germanicus left Rome, a massive earthquake ravaged Anatolia. Great chasms split the ground, mountains crumbled, plains were thrust upward, and fires swept across the ruins. Twelve major cities were utterly destroyed, including the ancient Lydian capital of Sardis. Its ill-fated king, Croesus had also once looked toward a promising future, only to find his own reign cut brutally short. After visiting his brother Drusus in Illyricum, where he now governed as Roman proconsul, Germanicus next put in at Nicopolis in Greece. Octavian had founded the city to commemorate his victory over Antony at nearby Actium. Looking out across the waters where his great-uncle had defeated his grandfather, Germanicus must have had thoughts on the strange twists of fate. Before moving on, he received word of his second consulship, alongside his adopted father, Tiberius. Then it was off to Athens, Euboea, and Lesbos, where his wife, Agrippina, gave birth to his sixth child, a daughter named Lavilla. After a brief excursion to the Black Sea, Germanicus next visited Ilium Novum, the Roman city built on the ruins of Bronze Age Troy. For fighting alongside Rome against Mithridates the Great, Ilium had been patronized by a series of Roman notables. First Pompey the Great, then Julius Caesar, and most recently Octavian. 
According to legend, the Trojan prince Aeneas had founded Rome after fleeing the sudden destruction of his city. Even more than Actium, Troy was a veritable monument to the uncertainty of fortune. Germanicus next put in at Colophon, on the Ionian coast, to consult the oracle of the Clarion Apollo. Unlike at Delphi, the priest was male, and no question was asked. Instead, the priest descended to his cavern, drank from a sacred spring, and resurfaced, spouting cryptic verses addressing the supplicant's unspoken concerns. On this occasion, his words supposedly predicted Germanicus's fate. But, like many such predictions, the signs were only recognized once it was already too late. Meanwhile, back in Rome, Tiberius was giving instructions to the new Syrian governor, Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso. Piso hailed from one of Rome's most distinguished and well-connected families, and, upon his marriage to a noblewoman named Plancina, had also become fabulously wealthy. He was also known to be arrogant, hot-tempered, and snobbish toward anyone he considered below his station. While this likely included Tiberius, Piso was smart enough to give Rome's ruler his unflinching obedience. Marching orders received, Piso set off to outrace Germanicus to his eastern posting. During a brief stop in Athens, Piso publicly accused Germanicus of compromising the dignity of the Roman name. Apparently, Germanicus had been too polite to publicly castigate the Athenians for their previous disloyalty. Specifically, their support for Mithridates the Great almost a century before, and their more recent backing of Antony against Octavian. It was an oversight that Piso quickly and loudly rectified. Piso caught up with Germanicus off the island of Rhodes, where both fleets were battered by a sudden storm. Piso's ships were all but lost, but Germanicus sent warships to guide him to safety. With barely a word of thanks, Piso hurried on to Syria. Not letting Piso be smashed against the rocks would come to be Germanicus's greatest regret. Like all Romans arriving by sea, Piso's first stop was the port city of Seleucia Pieria, near the mouth of the Orontes River. Twenty miles upriver lay the sprawling Syrian capital of Antioch. The city occupied around four square miles and was divided into four quarters, three south of the Orontes and the fourth on an island midstream. With around half a million inhabitants, Antioch was third largest city of the empire, after Rome and Alexandria. Its people were an eclectic mix of Greeks, Macedonians, Jews, Arabs, and Romans, along with many other citizens of mixed Near Eastern descent. The city had been founded by Alexander the Great's general, Seleucus, on a grid plan mirroring Alexandria. It had served as capital of the Seleucid Empire from the early 3rd century BC through the Roman conquest. Its royal palace, located on the midstream island, now housed the Roman governor. 
Once he'd settled in, Piso rushed to prepare for Germanicus's arrival. And no, I'm not talking about changing the sheets and leaving a fresh mint on the pillow. Mainly, I mean getting in tight with the Syrian legions, flattering the junior officers, replacing the senior ones with his own hand-picked men, and spreading around enough coin to ensure loyalty from top to bottom. It's unclear how much of this Germanicus picked up on off the bat. When he arrived, he was mainly preoccupied with getting his wife and children settled in and making preparations for a trip to Armenia. Yet another grim omen, that his first mission was to the very place that had cost Gaius Caesar his life. And after paying that high price to install him, Ariobarzanes II had lasted less than a year. In 4 AD, the dual throne of Media and Armenia was passed down to his son, Artavasdes III, who lasted all of two years before he was overthrown. His usurper was a royal cousin named Artabanus III. Having spent his youth among tribal nomads, Artabanus had little patience or respect for either Roman puppets or pampered locals. But Knowing that a takeover of Armenia would bring a swift Roman response, Artabanus limited his usurpation to media alone, which meant that, once again, Armenia was kingless, and, once again, they asked Octavian for help. This time, his choice was more inspired. Tigranes, son of the Cappadocian princess Glaphyra and Herod the Great's murdered son Alexander, was 22 years old in 6 AD. He'd also been educated in Rome and happened to be a great-great-grandson of Tigranes the Great. And just so you know, I've posted an updated family tree of Near Eastern dynasties up on the Ancient World website. Accompanied by the very strange bedfellows of King Archelaus of Cappadocia and the future Roman Emperor Tiberius, Tigranes V was installed as King of Armenia in 6 AD. Early into his reign, Armenian nobles forced Tigranes to accept joint rule with the previous Armenian queen, Arato. Little is known about their co-regency other than it lasted for a good six years. But in the end, the Armenian monarchs fell victim to a game of Near Eastern musical chairs. And, as so often in Armenian affairs, the main instigator was Parthia. The Parthian king Gaius Caesar negotiated with back in 2 AD, the father-killing, mother-marrying Phraates V, had been overthrown and killed two years later. Parthian nobles then elevated his nephew, who took the throne as Orodes III. When Orodes was killed two years later, the Parthian nobles found themselves in an awkward position. The senior surviving dynastic heir was Venones, the brother of Phraates V and eldest son of Phraates IV. The awkward part was Venones had been living in Rome as a royal hostage since 20 BC, so the Parthians had to ask Octavian if he could please, you know, give him back. 
Of course, just like Tigranes in Armenia, Octavian was only too happy to see a Roman-educated king mount a Near Eastern throne. Who wasn't happy? Well, pretty much everyone else. Apparently, King Venones I was so blatantly pro-Roman that, within a few years, the same nobles who'd requested him invited someone else in to overthrow him. Who'd they invite? Who else but the no-nonsense, rough-and-tumble, raised-by-nomads King Artabanus III of Media? Now, ruling Media was nice, but it was small potatoes compared to ruling the Parthian Empire. In 8 BC, Artabanus abdicated the Median kingship and launched a civil war against the Parthian king Venones I. In his wake, the Median throne was taken up by Artabanus's brother, also confusingly named Venones, who'd rule the kingdom for the next 43 years. Between 8 and 12 AD, coins minted by the Parthian king Venones I proclaimed him to be the conqueror of Artabanus. But that was only wishful thinking. In 12 AD, Artabanus captured the Parthian capital of Tessaphon, and Venones was forced to flee to nearby Armenia where, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, Octavian elevated him to the Armenian throne. So King Venones I of Parthia became King Venones I of Armenia. Meanwhile, Artabanus III became sole ruler of Parthia, a position he'd hold for the next 26 years. And what about Tigranes V, the previous king of Armenia? You know, he was probably asking the same question. Whatever regional calculations Octavian made apparently favored Venones over Tigranes. After being deposed, the young former king remained in Armenia, possibly waiting for a fortuitous death to bring him back to power. The next major death was Octavian's, and it didn't really change much. Venones was eventually removed from the Armenian throne by Tiberius in 16 AD in response to pressure from Artabanus III, but even then Tigranes remained out in the cold. Unsure of his next move, Tigranes approached King Archelaus of Cappadocia to see if he could talk him up to the new Roman ruler which was very likely the instigator of Archelaus's subsequent trial and death in Rome. In the here and now of 18 AD, Armenia had been without a king for nearly two years, but what it did have was a promising contender. After the death of King Archelaus and conversion of Cappadocia to a Roman province, Queen Pythodorus had returned to Pontus. She took with her her two sons from her previous marriage to King Polymon. The eldest was named Xenon, after Polymon's father. Thirty-one years old in 18 AD, Xenon had long had his eye on the Armenian throne. It's not exactly clear why, but he'd been attracted to the culture from an early age, adopted native traditions and dress, and slowly earned the love and respect of both the nobles and the common people.
Back in Rome, Zenon was considered less a stepson of the disgraced King Archelaus than an heir of the respected King Polemon, as well as a distant cousin of both Germanicus and Ptolemy of Mauritania. And yes, I know we've strayed a bit from the Ptolemy narrative this episode, but trust me, we'll get back to it soon. Zenon was already in the Armenian capital of Artaxata, all that was needed was for Germanicus to ride north and confirm his elevation. And so it happened that, as the first official act of his eastern imperium, Germanicus crowned his cousin as King Artaxius III of Armenia, also known as Zeno-Artaxius. Though no one could have guessed at the time, he'd end up ruling the kingdom for the next seventeen years. The only thing that would have made the ceremony more grand was the presence of the Syrian legions. In fairness, Germanicus had ordered the new Syrian governor, Piso, to march the soldiers north from Antioch. And where were they? Still in Antioch, totally ignoring Germanicus's orders. After installing proconsuls in the new Roman provinces of Cappadocia and Cilicia, Germanicus caught up with Piso in northern Syria. The meeting did not go well. Words were exchanged, they parted in anger, and from that moment on it was virtual war between them. Ironically, at around the same time, the Parthians were looking for peace. King Artabanus III requested a meeting with Germanicus to renew the vows of friendship previously made between Phraates V and Gaius Caesar. There was just one thing. Artabanus was gratified that the exiled Parthian king Venones had been removed from the Armenian throne. But even living in Antioch, he remained a destabilizing factor, and Artabanus wondered if Venones might be relocated farther west. Germanicus responded favorably to both requests, agreeing to a future summit along the Euphrates and transferring Venones to a town on the Cilician coast. The next year, Venones would be killed while attempting to escape his Roman overseers. During the rest of the year, Germanicus traveled widely throughout the eastern provinces, wearing simple dress and shunning bodyguards. He also helped the poor by opening state granaries and lowering the price of corn. In 19 AD, he set out for Egypt, which, on the one hand, made sense since it was an important eastern province, but on the other, Octavian had declared Egypt the private property of the Roman emperor, at the present time Tiberius, and had forbidden any high Roman official from visiting there without permission. Either ignorant of this fact or preferring to ask forgiveness over permission, Germanicus first visited the pyramids, then sailed up the Nile to Thebes, where Egyptian priests read him the inscriptions of the pharaoh Ramesses the Great. Germanicus eventually sailed up river as far as Elephantine, the southern boundary of the Roman Empire and northern border of the client kingdom of Cush. It was on the trip back north that Germanicus had his first inklings of trouble. 
Germanicus learned that pretty much every order he'd given to the Syrian legions or to eastern client kings had been completely nullified by Piso. While the Armenian incident had been obnoxious, this was open treason. The only question was whether it was treason against Rome or only against Germanicus. In other words, was Piso a loose cannon or a smart bomb guided by Tiberius? As Germanicus made his way back to Syria, there was another troubling development. The superfit 34-year-old Roman general began to suffer from a debilitating illness. Germanicus immediately suspected poison, and Piso suspiciously picked just that time to leave Antioch for Seleucia ad Bellum, some 120 miles up the Orontes to the south. When Germanicus returned to Antioch, his suspicions were ramped up by the discovery of what Tacitus describes as human bodies, spells, curses, leaden tablets engraved with the name Germanicus, charred and blood-smeared ashes, and other implements of witchcraft. Over the succeeding days, in the constant company of his family and friends, Germanicus continued to weaken. Germanicus was dying. He knew he was dying. He knew who was responsible, and he knew what needed to be done. He implored his friends that strangers will bewail Germanicus, you will avenge him. But he also pleaded with Agrippina not to openly accuse Tiberius, fearing for her life and the lives of their children. Everyone present swore to honor his final wishes, and then Germanicus died. It's impossible to say what the future may have brought, but dying young and at the peak of his abilities and potential, Germanicus was destined to be remembered as both the idealized Roman and the penultimate missed opportunity. His funeral was marked by effusive eulogies on his many good qualities and sorrow for his tragic death. Devastated but undaunted, his widow Agrippina collected his ashes and her six children and set sail for Rome. She was likely unaware that the city she was returning to was already gripped by fear. This was the time when, as Tacitus puts it, the law of treason was coming to its strength. Tiberius had begun putting prominent figures on trial for treason against the Republic, having them sentenced to either banishment or death. Once refined, the process would be broadly expanded and directed against all of Tiberius's enemies, perceived enemies, and friends and relatives of perceived enemies. To aid the effort, Tiberius had elevated Lucius Aelius Sejanus, whom he'd first met during Gaius Caesar's eastern expedition, to the office of Praetorian Prefect. At the time, the Praetorians were a body of around 4,000 elite soldiers who effectively served as Rome's city guard. Under the leadership of Sejanus, they'd soon come to play a powerful role in Roman politics as well. Sejanus was, even then, drawing up plans to consolidate the 20 Praetorian encampments inside the city into a single garrison just outside Rome. 
He also planned to raise the number of Praetorian cohorts from nine to twelve and handpick all their leaders himself. Once implemented, these changes would give Tiberius and Sejanus over 5,000 loyal troops under their immediate command. Meanwhile, on the Ionian island of Kos, Piso was weighing his next move. He could race to Rome to defend himself against Agrippina's charges, knowing he had the secret backing of Tiberius. But of course the magic word was secret. Publicly, Tiberius was likely to deny any collusion and just throw him under the cart. Piso decided the stronger move was to return to Syria, reclaim the governorship, and just hope that the whole thing would somehow blow over. Unfortunately, there was a complication. In Piso's absence, local officials had already appointed a new Syrian governor named Gnaeus Sentius which meant that Piso'd have to fight to regain his position. First, he shot off a quick letter to Tiberius, denouncing Germanicus and defending his actions. Then, Piso ordered local client kings to send him their auxiliaries, which he cobbled together into a makeshift legion. In response, Sentius gathered the Syrian legions and took to the field to put down Piso's rebellion. Piso holed up in a fortress on the Cilician coast and tried to inspire his soldiers with a mixture of deception and bribery. And it totally worked, right up until the moment the Roman cohorts climbed the steep cliff and met Piso's improvised army on level ground. Then it was a quick sprint back behind the walls of the fortress, which was promptly surrounded by Sentius's legions. When Piso started offering bribes to Sentius's troops, the new proconsul decided enough was enough, and started building earthen mounds and ladders to scale the walls. Piso knew the game was up, and tried to negotiate his terms of surrender. Could he maybe remain inside the fortress until Tiberius weighed in on the governorship? Uh, no. But Sentius did offer a few ships and safe conduct back to Rome, provided Piso surrendered immediately. Piso accepted the offer, forced to choose the option he'd initially avoided. Face to face with his accusers, and under the fickle eye of Tiberius, Piso'd have to fight for his reputation and his life back in Rome. Mm-hmm.